Hello and welcome to The Planet Today. It is Friday, January 27th, 2023. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy every Friday with bonus interviews on Mondays and a shorter episode of the first Monday of each month. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going on this fine Friday? Matty, it is going super well, my man. Super well. Excited for the weekend. I'm going home for my great aunt's 100th birthday. Wow. Happy birthday, Auntie Dell. That is amazing. <laughs> she's she's a legend. She's an absolute legend. She's like the most mentally sharp 100-year-old I've ever met in my entire life, by far. Um, and yeah, she's just such a, such a cool person. Do me a favor. Next week on the show, come back with one pearl of wisdom. Like, what is the one thing that she wants people to know? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, as, as someone who's lived through a lot more than we have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I want, I always ask her like, what, what is the secret? She just says, never get old. Fair enough. So I don't really know. I don't really know what to do with that besides uh, just kind of holster it. Yeah. Just kind of every time you uh, start to feel old, just don't. Yeah. Just stop. Stop doing <laughs> it. <laughs> wow. All right. I'm going to be waiting seven calendar days to talk to you about, about what the pearl of wisdom she has for us. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. In the meantime, what do you say? We drop some wisdom on the people. Let's do it. Let's do it. for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by The Guardian's Brian Kahn, who writes, Are gas stoves really dangerous? What we know about the science. One of two major culture wars in the United States over the past couple weeks, and unfortunately we don't have time to get into Fox News freaking out about M&Ms creating a new character uh, that was meant to be more (laughs) inclusive. So here we're going to talk about the other one, which is gas stoves. They are great to cook on, but how are they for your lungs? When in use, they create heat, which causes nitrogen and oxygen to fuse with the flames. They combine those gases to create nitric oxide and nitrogen dioxide, otherwise known as NOx, or nitrous oxides. Nitrous oxides can irritate the lungs. Cooking with gas can also emit carbon monoxide, particulate matter, and even formaldehyde, according to this article. Gas stoves also emit benzene, which is a known carcinogen. 99% of homes sampled in California during a study by PSE Healthy Energy contained benzene. That same study found that gas stoves can emit as much benzene as a cigarette, so cooking with gas can be comparable to inhaling secondhand smoke. The bigger issue with benzene is that having a gas stove that's off will emit as much benzene in your house as living with an indoor smoker. Yeah, and they also emit methane. Gas stoves emit as much methane as 500,000 cars per year in the U.S. For our gas stove users, using a hood or vent when cooking can move some of that pollution outside, but it just moves the pollution and doesn't actually lower it. Replacing gas stoves can be pricey, but it seems to be worth it from a health standpoint. So that being said... Gas stoves cook food very well. There's a reason why they're so popular. There's a reason why so many chefs like them. There's a phrase, oh, we're cooking with gas right now. Yeah. (laughs) 
Like they're, they're popular for a reason and they do a really excellent job of cooking. But I kind of want to just open up the floor here to a discussion. Nick, what do you think? Are they are they worth it or do the cons kind of outweigh the pros here? Yeah, this is a tough one because it's just like something that is so familiar. I feel like to so many people and it's it's what people have in their house right now. So to ask them to stop using it is kind of insane, especially like if you don't have the you know disposable income to just say, all right, screw it, let's get rid of the gas range. But I mean, if you can avoid it, I certainly would. When it comes down to it, it's about you and your health and the health of your family. And I feel like a lot of people are going to just like, it's just going to completely phase out. Mm-hmm. Um, people are going to have to move to to electric stoves. Because um, like ultimately, at the end of the day, your family is breathing in the pollution. Yeah. And that's just not something that's going to fly. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think that, you know, you make a good point. It's going to be hard to get people to change and people might not have disposable income. I think what we're more likely looking at is some sort of regulation that says all new houses... Yeah, you know those have to yeah. have electric. They're not going to come in and you know knock on doors and say, "Do you have a gas stove? We're going <laughs> to rip it out today." Yeah, um, yeah. but I, we we could see it phased out. And, and honestly, I grew up with electric. I've cooked on gas. I had a couple apartments in college that I lived with that had gas. I get it. You know, you can control the heat really well. It's it's a lot quicker to heat up with a gas flame. But at the same time, you know, this is a, a personal take here. But as someone who has asthma. I don't want to inhale more pollution than I have to. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if if I can avoid it and I don't have gas just leaking in my kitchen even when the stove is off, that's probably going to make me feel a lot better. I'm not going to be coughing as much. To me, that's worth it. And I know there's a lot of parents out there who probably don't want their kids breathing in unhealthy air. So gas stoves have been around a long time. But as new information comes out, we use that new information to make our lives better. And I think in this case, for me personally, the pros of cooking with gas are are much more heavily outweighed by the cons of having gas leaking in your home. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. It's also just not like a comforting thought. Just like gas is just leaking in your house and like throughout the entirety of your home. Just not a fun thought. So yeah, I can't imagine that people will be putting these in in new homes. But let's move on to our next story, and it is from World Animal News, where Karen Lapisco writes, A conservation success as zero Indian rhinos were poached in 2022, making it the first time in 45 years. All right, it's worth starting off this conversation by saying that the government has a shoot-on-sight policy towards poachers, Regardless of those circumstances, it is great news that zero rhinos were poached in the Indian state of Assam for the first time in 45 years. The greater one-horned rhino, a.k.a. the Indian rhino, was down to 12 individuals in 1908, mostly because of sport hunting. 115 years later, there are almost 2,900 Indian rhinos in the region, and the species has doubled across northeastern India. This is already considered an ongoing conservation success story. So the news that there were no poaching events last year is another reason to feel good about the Indian rhino. Wildlife Trust of India's joint director and chief strategy and liaison for Northeast India, Dr. Rathan Barman, said that the achievement follows strong public action on burning 2,500 rhino horns seized from poachers last year. 
If we continue to devalue poached goods and disincentivize poaching, then public sentiment of just being against poaching in general goes a long way. So stories like burning those poached rhino horns, stories of banning things like the trade of illegal ivory, make me really hopeful that there can be good news for conservation of endangered species, despite the challenges that we face and that those species face with climate change and habitat loss. Yeah, and like we've talked about this on the show before, but when you take away the market for this so that the guys who are who are trying to poach and take these rhinos horns and all that stuff, mm-hmm. you take the market away from them, they can't do it for money anymore. And ultimately, that's the only reason that they're probably doing it. Um, and in the long run, we're seeing great results with this. So uh, yeah, we you got to cut out the uh, the market for it and the rest will follow. Yeah, it's really interesting to me with something like rhino horns because for years there was the old you know folklore that rhino horns had medicinal properties, mm-hmm. and they don't. You know, they're they're made of keratin, which is the same stuff that our fingernails are made of, the same stuff that our hair is made of. Yeah, it's a lot more dense. It's a lot harder. It's in a cooler shape than our fingernails, but <laughs> it's really just the same. You know, part of our body on a rhino, so. With, with that, it, it is money. You know, that's the big driver is that people are making money off of rhino horns. Mm-hmm. Like you said, if we can cut that out, it takes away the need to poach. You know, it addresses the root cause for why people poach. It's not like they're just yep. waking up and being like, hey, it'd be really fun to go kill a rhino today. Yeah. They're doing it because it's profitable for them and people get desperate sometimes. With elephant tusks, you know, I think that's even more important to cut out the market and not to compare the two but like in this case we kind of have to ivory is only used for things that will make money rhino horns it's it's more of an education thing as well where it's like we need to cut out the market but we also need to educate people that there are no medicinal properties to rhino horns right with elephant tusks you know there's no real education that needs to happen there it's just we need to cut out the market no one's trying to turn tusks into medicine yeah so i don't know it's it's a really I hate to use the word interesting for a problem like this because I hate taking interest in something that has, you know, caused the extinction of so many species, but poaching is a really difficult problem to solve. And I think at times we tend to focus on the poachers as opposed to what you mentioned, which is focusing on the market for poached goods. And now now that we're seeing that transition where that seems to be more of the focus over the last decade you know, you're seeing really good results and I hope that that can continue. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. All right. The next story is titled UCLA researcher develops a Python library called climate learn for accessing state of the art climate data and machine learning models in a standardized and straightforward way by Kushbu Gupta published in Mark tech post for anyone out there. That's like, Hey, this is a wildlife conservation show. They're probably talking about Python's The Snakes. No, we were talking about Python, the coding software. Yeah. Climate modeling has become more accurate in the past decade, and part of that is caused by improvements in general circulation models, a.k.a. GCMs. GCMs are used by scientists to forecast the weather and the climate in the future. The models are easy to understand, and they're very accurate, but they require a ton of computational power to run. Machine learning aims to combat this by scaling down the algorithms that are run with those GCMs. 
A lack of standardization in using machine learning for climate science and a lack of expertise in how to analyze this data has made it more difficult to unlock the full potential of climate modeling. Researchers at UCLA aim to combat this through their development of ClimateLearn, a Python package that makes it easier to standardize climate data and machine learning models. Yeah, it's, it's really cool because something that's exciting about machine learning is that it's a new field, really, and it's only getting better. In standardizing that, we're starting to see that it can be applied across the field, in this case of, of climate modeling, and with more researchers and more labs doing more models, if we can kind of standardize that process and standardize the climate data that machine learning is incorporating, we'll have a lot more models that are a lot easier for people to use, people to expand upon, and you know, people like me and you to look at and say, yep, I understand what this is telling me. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, this is not my area of expertise at all. I am not a coder. Same. You could put me to bed and put me to sleep. I'm, yeah, just tuck me in. I'm, I'm all set on coding. I, I can't get into it. Yeah, we could have uh, one, of, one of my very good friends. is uh, He's a cybersecurity guy. So maybe if, uh, nice. if we ever do have machine learning for climate modeling on the show, we can <laughs> phone him in and have him yeah. explain it to us. Oh, that'd be great. So this article says that the primary goal of the researchers in developing Climate Learn was to close the gap between the communities of climate science and machine learning by making climate data sets easily accessible, providing baseline models for easy comparison and visualization metrics to comprehend the model outputs. Uh, that all sounds like a lot of fancy words. It basically means that they're making each part of the model better don't really have a ton to add here. It's just very exciting to see more accurate modeling on the way in a form that's going to be a lot more accessible for people like us and people who listen to this show. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the more information we have, the better, right? Can't, can't lose, can't hurt. And especially for the people who are still trying to deny climate change, maybe this makes it more clear. So, Yeah, and, and honestly, this makes it more clear for the people who listen to the people trying to deny it. Because right now you have a lot of complex data sets and a lot of difficult to follow modeling and you're kind of just relying on, you know, there's people out here who probably listen to our show and rely on us, mm-hmm. but there's people that you trust, people that do look at these models and you go to them to understand it because they're not easy to understand on their own. If we can make it so that every single person in this country, in the world can understand climate modeling because it's just very straightforward and easy to understand with this new climate learn package from UCLA, that's great. Yeah, yeah, 100%. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We got two more quick hits for you after that. Stay tuned. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A.co and code TPT. 
Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And next up, how pesticides intensify global warming by Maria Parazzo Rose of Grist. A new study published in Pesticide Action Network shows that pesticides are contributing to climate change through their manufacturing, their transportation, their application, and even as they degrade and are eventually disposed of. The group publishing the study also says that pesticide efficacy is declining, while climate change amplifies the need to use more pesticides. So basically saying... We're using a lot more because the climate's changing, and as the climate keeps changing, we are going to need to use more and more, all while the value and the, the usage success rate of these pesticides is going down. The article sums up this cycle by saying pesticides add emissions to the atmosphere that accelerate climate change. Warming climates stress agriculture systems and increase the number of pests and insects, requiring more pesticides. The greenhouse gas emissions from pesticides are traditionally understudied and underestimated. Using one ton of pesticides like sulfuryl fluoride on termites or beetles, for example, is the equivalent of emitting 5,000 tons of CO2. Pesticides are also a problem of big oil, where 99% of synthetic pesticides are derived from petroleum. California uses almost one-fifth of the annual pesticides used in the U.S., as the state supplies a third of the country's vegetables and around two-thirds of the country's fruits and nuts. Rising temperatures have contributed to less crop resilience due to increased heat stress, changes in rainfall, and more insects in more locations. Hotter temperatures can also vaporize some pesticides, which turns them into a toxic gas. Yeah, not good. So for those of you who were wondering how we can fix this, the article suggests agroecology as the answer. Agroecology is a farming practice that focuses on conservation agriculture and adapting to local conditions. The report says agroecology leads to better public health, improved food security and sovereignty, and enhanced biodiversity and social benefits, such as better cooperation between farmers and communities. Researchers add that shifting to this form of farming would be costly, but I don't know. I, I would really need to see a cost-benefit analysis to confirm what I'm thinking here, but I really can't imagine the cost of switching being that outrageous if it increases our food security and decreases our reliance on pesticides in the face of climate change. You know, We, we say this all the time about all of these topics we bring up, but to me, our health is worth the investment. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why so many people are conscious of what they're putting in their body, what vegetables they're buying, what they always come out now with like the the dirty dozen list. Yep. Where like all it's like all the worst fruits and veggies for you to eat, the most pesticided uh, fruits and veggies. And I think people are conscious of that. And and for that reason, like I'm seeing strawberry strawberries in stores somewhat cheaper. Yeah, it's a really good point. And, you know, when you think about it, people often eat food for two reasons. It's either good for us or it's unhealthy, but we enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And when you start to think about those foods that should be good for us, you know, it sucks that certain chemicals make them a lot more unhealthy. And in this case, you know, you brought up strawberries. That was one of the ones in the dirty dozen last year. I remember we talked about it on the show. Mm -hmm. Strawberries in theory should be good for you and you shouldn't really have to worry about what are they sprayed with and like what kind of damage is this fruit this this naturally occurring unprocessed fruit yeah. doing to my body and that's what pesticides do to us it makes us have to question you know how good 
is the food that I'm eating for me. And that sucks because a lot of people can't afford organic vegetables, organic fruits. So your options are suck it up and buy the, the produce that's more expensive, mm-hmm. which if you're feeding a family of five is a lot more difficult, or you have to go into those cheaper, you know, in, inorganic, I guess is the phrase I was looking for, inorganic produce that who knows what it's sprayed with. Yeah. Yeah. And like, we're also talking about when we're talking about like fruits and veggies is like nutrient density. And like all of that has been Mm -hmm. like erased almost. It seems not completely erased, but like diminished from, you know, the fruits and veggies that our parents were eating in in the seventies and eighties growing up. I remember like a huge story came out, came out about that, like um, the nutrient density and like all the fruits and veggies not having the same impact on our, our health as they, like once used to. So that's another, you know, we could talk about that for a day and a half, but overall it's just like, I go back to that documentary that we watched kiss the ground where they talk about pesticides Mm -hmm. and that it's just a cycle and that the more you use pesticides, the more you need them. And it's this endless vicious cycle. And like, ultimately it comes down to, I can't remember the guy's name, but like his method in farming and like educating farmers on how to, make their soil as healthy as it possibly can be is a big talking point for this one. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And you know, pesticides for all the harm they've done, they, they made it easier to feed a lot more people. So I could see why before we knew any better, like why the pesticide industry really took off, but yeah, we know better now. And it's really similar to what we talked about earlier with gas stoves, things like as we learn more and as we have this data available, let's use it. Yeah, exactly. There's no reason to ignore the stuff that we know now that we we didn't before. Yeah. All right, let's get into our last quick hit of the week, and it is from the Colorado Sun, where Gabe Allen and Tyler Hickman write, why the ground under Colorado solar panels is ripe for growing food. I really love stuff like this, and I'm glad that we get to close out the episode today on a a more happy note, but this is about dual-use solar, which is my favorite type of solar, whether it's France saying that parking lots need to be covered by solar carports or this article promoting agrivoltaics, which is the combination of agriculture and solar photovoltaic energy, um, with some farms and forests around the country being cleared to make room for utility scale solar plants. Some of those are opting to plant crops underneath those solar modules. The one in this article is called Jack's Solar Garden, and it features herbs, berries, veggies, and hay between rows of the solar modules. In just a few acres, the solar facility grows produce for a local farm and produces enough electricity to power 300 homes. Three separate research institutions can be found on site studying the production of the crops and the solar plant. The idea behind agrivoltaics is that some crops grow well in shade underneath the panels, so why not maximize the production of the land as a whole? If you need to plant something, why plant grass when you can plant blueberries, for example? Mm. And this article goes on to talk about the specifics of Colorado's politics surrounding agrivoltaics, which are becoming more popular, but still wouldn't really call them popular. Luckily, Democratic Governor Jared Polis wants to help farmers experience the benefits of solar on their farms without needing to totally stop producing crops on that field. Agrivoltaics help farmers in two ways. First way is with the solar power. 
which the farm can use to power its operations or generate revenue through a lease agreement from a solar developer. Number two is the shade from the panels can create microclimates. With different amounts of sunlight and moisture underneath the panels than in other areas of the farm with wide open fields. Yeah, these microclimates are going to allow farmers to grow different crops that otherwise wouldn't grow as well in that area. And also it supports local pollinators. For the solar arrays themselves, this can actually increase the performance of the panels as the crop absorbs some of the heat that normally would just go into the grass or the solar panel itself. You know, now you have an entire other plant, whether it's a blueberry bush or other types of vegetables, absorbing some of that sunlight and helping turn it into food. Yeah, this is awesome. I mean, I think you got to give the people the blueprint on this one because it's it's a great design. My issue is that like if they're growing a higher yield crop or like I'm talking about like straight profit, are they going to want to drop down, you know, solar panels and then grow blueberries, which might not be as lucrative. I don't know. It's that's a discussion for another day, I guess. But um, overall, this is great dual use of the same land. So can't lose. Yeah. I mean, with with solar, it's so profitable on its own that typically what's going in here is like you're going to clear the land and put in solar or you're going to stay, you know, planting certain crops. So if it is a high yield, I doubt that's going to be impacted here. What we're looking for in this scenario, and there's a bunch of other agrivoltaic farms. I know there's a couple in New Hampshire. Um, there's a bunch in the Northeast that read about a year or two ago. Basically what's going in is like, if you were going to get rid of part of your farmland to put in a solar array, there's a way to maximize the value of the entire plot of land instead of just using it for just planting or just solar. So this 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 should be really cool if it takes off in Colorado and it's cool to see that their governor and a lot of members of their state government want Colorado to be a leader in this industry and hopefully, you know, like you said, be the blueprint for other states to follow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It'd be great. So some more good news. A private sector project is actually going to perform a massive agrivoltaics test soon. In August, Delta County commissioners approved the Garnet Mesa Solar Project, which is going to pair 80 megawatts of solar capacity with a thousand local sheep. Sheep, bees, those are two other non-plants that do really, really well on solar fields. So hopefully it works out as well as we think it's going to. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it could work. And it sounds like a really good thing for you and I to cover on the planet today after August. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. After our 15th heat story for the week. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Not looking forward to that. But all right. Before we get to that, that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. We will be back next Friday for our first episode of February. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Send us an email or follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout it. Nick, where can the good people keep up with you? You can keep up with me at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next week. Peace.